So Julie's going to talk about uh, the MISCARE report. Julie's a senior research fellow in the School of Nursing and Midwifery at Flinders. She's a health sociologist, and her current research focuses on the social aspects of chronic disease management. Please welcome Julie. Hello. Now I'm presenting, uh, let me see, for a team from Flinders University. Um, and what I'm going to present are the findings of the MISCARE survey that some of you may have seen that was circulated late last year and early this year. And as Norman indicated, in essence, we're talking about rationing of care as well. And we're talking about the impact of rationing of care upon nurses' capacity to deliver all the care that they're required to deliver. So if we get started. Just to give you a bit of background to miscare, miscare is a relatively new term in terms of research, nursing research. Um, it was first started by Kalish in 2009, and she's starting to look at care, required patient care that is omitted, either in part or whole, or care that is delayed, so care that's to push it over to the next shift. And in developing her survey, she looked at three aspects of uh, background which may contribute to miscare. These are the labour resources. And this is not only having enough nursing staff, it's having enough assistive staff. So it's having ward clerks, it's having wardsmen to assist you to do the work. The second factor she had, uh, identified was access to material resources. So having the resources to do the job, having the equipment, making sure the equipment works, um, being able to find medications. So one of the big issues that we've found is people chasing medications after hours. And the third, so a lot of this, I guess, relates to what Adam was saying, if I got the right name, is <laughs> that a lot of the time, a lot of miscare comes from people doing tasks that are unnecessary, having to spend time on tasks that could be managed better. And the third aspect of miscare that uh, Kalisha Williams identified was relationship and communication factors. So care that is missed because things weren't passed on. And this is not just within the nursing team, but across the whole healthcare team. Right. As my eyes, my, I'm a bit short-sighted, I'm going to keep my notes here with me. Now, I'm not going to try and pronounce this name, so I'm just going to call this the Cypress team. A team in Cyprus has associated miscare with insufficient resources to care for patients, which leads to nurses rationing care. So nurses are having to say, well, I've only got a certain amount of time to do the tasks that I need to do, so I have to decide and prioritise which tasks are most important. So what we're looking at is how nurses decide which, uh, what is most important, what gets left out, and the reasons why things get left out. And other work that has been done by Schubert in Switzerland has found that this leads, they looked at nurse sensitive indicators and found that the, the rationing of care leads to poorer patient outcomes across a number of nurse sensitive indicators. Now, a little bit about the work we've done. We're working with a team from Australia and New Zealand and we've done a number of surveys in different states. We uh, surveyed, we conducted the miscare survey in South Australia in 2012, and we've published from that work. We, uh, it was 
conducted in New Zealand in 2013, New South Wales in 2014 and early 2015, and we're currently surveying Victorian and Tasmanian nurses, and we're hoping to survey Queensland nurses next year. Uh, we've also done two qualitative studies. We've done interview studies with acute aged care, uh, acute care nurses in two tertiary hospitals in South Australia, and we interviewed 21 nurses who worked after hours, uh, particularly focusing on after hours managers, looking at the reasons they found for why care was missed after hours. And we also have spoken to rural aged care nurses in South Australia, um, specifically in hospitals that have long-term aged care wards, but also in residential aged care facilities to look at the issues they're facing because we found through our survey research in South Australia that the issues that are faced by rural aged care nurses are quite different. Now, with, when the survey was out, we had 4,400 responses. Um, and the actual structure of the survey was 22 items relating to the frequency of miscare. So these were 22 tasks that we were asked nurses to rate whether, how frequently these tasks were missed over the last three months. There were 18 items that related to why nursing care was missed. So we, people, the respondents were asked to indicate um, how important this factor is in why you miss care. There were six items relating to self-rated ability to manage work processes. So this was about the confidence of the nurse to manage their workload. And we were also asked five questions on rounding. And this was specifically done for, this, for New South Wales because there was an interest... Hold on, I'm just going to have a drink. There was interest... <coughs> there was interest in determining whether rounding was managing this care. And the data was analysed using descriptive statistics, so we looked at just raw numbers and also averages. We also did rash analysis, which allowed us to prioritise the care that was being missed, but also to prioritise the reasons why care was being missed. We did path analysis, which allowed some modelling to determine the impact of various different factors upon miscare. And finally, we did some thematic analysis of the open questions. Now, our actual sample. I think our sample was fairly representative of the nursing workforce in New South Wales. In the 62% of the respondents for 45 years and older, 90% were women, 74% were employed in the public sector, 86% were RNs, and 54% had 11 or more years experience in their current role, either as an RN or EN. Moving on to results. This table lists the five most commonly missed activities across the three shifts. So on the morning shift, the most commonly missed activity was BSL monitoring, followed by patient education, patient bathing and skincare, so hygiene, hand washing, and PRM medication given within 15 minutes. Now this was interesting for us as the South Australian data actually had BSL monitoring and hand washing as the two activities that were least likely to be missed. So it's the complete opposite to what we got in South Australia. In the afternoon shift, the activities that were most commonly missed were feeding patients while food was warm, 
providing emotional support, patient discharge planning, setting patients up for meals, and administering medication within 30 minutes of schedule. I don't know if any of this sounds familiar to anybody. Yes. On the night shift, it was the fluid balance charts, vital signs, PRO medication with 15 minutes, setting up patients for meals and bathing and skin care. The last two items obviously are not things that you would necessarily be performing on night duty. And while there was an option for indicating that a task was not applicable, some people obviously missed it. So uh, these, these two results are perhaps less relevant than others. Now, this diagram, I'm not sure how readable this is going to be for people, so I'll talk to it. Ian, who did most of the analysis, the quantitative analysis for this survey, looked at care in relation to three types of care, or three priorities for care, based on work by Alvaro Lefevre. And he divided the care into low priority care, intermediate or treatment priority care, and high priority care. And the priority is not about, is not about the hospital's priority, but about the priority to the patient's health. So high priority care would be things like the BSLs, patient assessment, hand washing, CVC and IV lines and the BSLs. The low priority care, while it's very important to the hospital, is perhaps less important to the patient, is the documentation, the discharge planning, uh, patient education. While the intermediate or treatment related care is what we would normally consider basic nursing care, so it's the things like feeding, hygiene, turning, um, toileting, wound care, medication. And Ian looked at the different uh, impact, the, these, the amount which, which these contributed to miscare, and what he found was 63% of miscare was basically the intermediate care, the basic nursing care, so the turning, the feeding, the uh, toileting, the hygiene. And again, I'm not sure that there would be an awful lot of surprise with that result. Um, um, but whereas, and 23% was the high priority care, so the, the vital signs, the BSLs, the hand washing, the IV lines, the CVC lines, and low priority care like documentation and patient education, discharge planning, was least frequently missed. And that accounted for 21% of missed care. When we look at the reasons for miscare, I've compared here the public and private sector and just looked at the top five reasons for miscare. As you can see, the reasons basically come down to staffing issues and workload. So in the public sector, the top five reasons for miscare are an unexpected rise in patient volume or acuity, an inadequate number of staff, an urgent patient situation, so someone worsening all of a sudden, heavy admission and discharge activity, and this was only within the public sector, not within the private sector, and, adequate, and in an adequate number of assistive or clerical personnel. Within the private sector, the primary reason for miscare was inadequate number of staff, followed by urgent patient situation, an inadequate number of assistive or clerical personnel, an unexpected rise in patient volume or acuity, an unbalanced patient assignment. And again, this didn't occur within the public sector or wasn't identified within the public sector. Now, this is going to be completely unreadable, so I'll talk to this. This is the modelling. 
And what we have around the outside are the factors which contribute to miscare. And if you look closely, there are three um, factors which have black, very deep black uh, arrows from them. And these are the three factors which have a direct impact upon miscare. And these are work intensity, and that relates to issues like inadequate staffing, an unexpected rise in patient volume or workload, and lack of assistive staff. The second factor which contributes to miscare is communication issues, and this relates to communication within the team and with other health care workers, but also with handovers, issues with handover and transfers. And the third factor which is seen as having a direct impact upon miscare is access to resources. And we were asked by Mark this, to include the RN as a resource within the survey for, this, for New South Wales to look at what's happening within aged care. And what we found was that not having access to equipment or having equipment which was not functioning and not having access to an RN was a major contributor to miscare. The other factors that are listed around have an indirect impact. While they affect uh, miscare, they operate through the three factors which have a direct impact. So if we have a look at this in terms of a table, which should be a little bit easier to read, there are three things that have a direct impact on miscare. And the, act, the thing that has the most impact is actually access to resources to do nursing care. So it's having things at hand. And through the after hours work we've done, we've discovered that particularly in after hours periods, people aren't having access to linen, they can't get hold of meals for catering, they're chasing medications. So they're spending a tremendous amount of time just trying to find resource, the resources they need to provide the care. And that accounts for 45% of missed care. And if you have a look on the right-hand side, there's another table which talks about factors which have an indirect impact. And what happens in this case is that these factors act through the, the factor which has the direct impact. So workload predictability, that is, being able, the workload across the shift and the predictability of the workload across the shift only affects miscare when there's not enough resources to deliver care. Um, same with communication between clinical and other team members. That accounts for 37% of miscare, and that's affected by the age of the nurse or midwife, and what we actually found was the effect was mixed depending upon the shift. So for some shifts, older midwives, uh, nurses and midwives improved communication, and other shifts, they were seen as not improving communication. There was also the workload predictability, so again, the, the predictability of how heavy the workload is going to be across the shift becomes an issue which then affects communication, which in turn leads to miscare. And thirdly, the confidence of the nurse. The nurse and mid midwives self-rated ability to deliver care. So if the nurse and midwife are confident, their communication is often better, whereas if they're not confident, they don't approach people. So that communication breaks down, leading to miscare. The third factor, which is the workload intensity, accounts for 32% of miscare. And this is affected by worksite. And what we found was that metropolitan tertiary hospitals are much more likely to have difficulties with workload intensity, whereas rural hospitals and aged care facilities, while the work was intensive, 
or more likely to cite access to resources as an issue. The work status, so whether people were working full-time or part-time, and whether people were working the roster they wanted to work. So dissatisfaction, basically, whether people are basically unhappy anyway. We also analysed, well, I analysed the open questions. And we asked a question which... We asked people just if there was anything else they wanted to tell us about miscare. And what we got was sort of three types of responses, those relating to the causes of miscare, those that talked about what was missed, and those that talked about the impact of miscare. And the um, causes of miscare were sort of related to work intensification, staffing issues, and a whole lot of other issues which we haven't sort of classified under a specific heading. In terms of work intensification, patient acuity was frequently mentioned as a problem. There is a, a sense that the patient cohort is becoming older and has more complex conditions, and this is across the board from the tertiary hospitals, primary care so, and community services, and in aged care. So people are feeling like they're dealing with patients that are sicker and more difficult and require more care. Another issue that was identified was cost containment. So there was a perception that governments are trying to save money by cutting back staffing, and this is having a negative impact. And nurses are being asked to do more with less. In terms of staffing issues, the workload model was identified, um, particularly by midwives. The birth rate plus a staffing model was seen as problematic, as that it didn't include... Yes, I... We've hidden earth there. All right, the birth rate plus model was seen, was identified by midwives as difficult because it didn't include babies, basically, within the workload. And that's the primary. <laughs> right, I've, I have to make sure I'm not being too controversial. <laughs> but also because it didn't recognise that, the, the, you know, more difficult deliveries, it didn't account for more difficult deliveries. Um, ratios were also... Well, ratios were also identified as difficult in some rural hospitals in that um, there were some hospitals that weren't adhering to ratios. Um, again, the lack of ratios in aged care was identified. And the, um, a particular issue was the sort of shifting of ratios by stealth, which is my term, which where the ratios are established, but when you need specials, you can't get someone to special, so that you're having to, to manage more patients with less staff, or that um, people are working longer shifts. Um, yeah, or you're getting staff replaced with less experienced staff. Skill mix was also identified as a big issue. Um, the skill mix issues were around, there was a perception that senior staff were being replaced by more junior staff that when people were sent relieving or that were unavailable, that RNs were being replaced by staff with, less, with lesser scope of practice, uh, and that the mix between RNs and ENs and AINs could sometimes mean that RNs were carrying an extra workload. Um, fluctuations in workload across shifts. Why this was particularly discussed in relation to need, so that the, the need to get patients out of emergency departments within four hours. What the impact of this um, is that people are 
having to shift patients around between wards, which is creating a lot of work, extra work. And it means that sometimes the information isn't handed over properly. Uh, so that, and it also means that there are fluctuations in workload and also the discharge, the push to discharge patients was seen as leading to, to fluctuations in workload across shift. And finally, the lack of access to support, and other, to support from other staff, particularly after hours. So lack of access to doctors, difficulty in getting doctors, particularly in rural hospitals again and, and in aged care, or having to fill in for allied health staff after hours. What I've listed as other causes of miscare, there was a perception that there was a lack of managerial support, that perhaps managers were a bit out of touch with the realities of nursing care. Again, I think that one's hit a nerve. <laughs> there was, people also identified issues of poor access to equipment, resources and medication. There was poor communication and particularly poor handover, and that, that was particularly a factor because of all the transferring of patients. And also, some people identified that nurse, some nurses are just lazy. <laughs> I won't say anything more about that one. I'm just reporting the findings. <laughs> now, just a handful of quotes just to, to illustrate some of the data. We, the first quote is from a nurse who's been in the system for many years. And she said, it's about work intensification. I have been nursing for 30 years, hospital trained. There is a huge amount to our role. And when I first trained, we have less nurses than ever, and from when I first trained, we have less nurses than ever. And our role keeps on expanding. We can't cover all the things we need to do because of this. The second one deals with the acuity of patients and the increasing acuity of patients. Due to the increase in the orderly in our ward, it makes our nursing day very hard. Acuities are higher, patients to me are a lot sicker and have more comorbidities, doubles our workload. The next uh, slide deals with a couple of quotes around staffing issues. The first one relates to um, acuity and staffing ratios. Staffing is done on hours per patient, per day per patient care in this facility and takes no account of the acuity of their patient leaving minimal staffing with some very difficult, heavy patients to care for. And the second one talks about skill mix. Each government, in an attempt to save money, has compounded this problem, miscare, by removing corporate knowledge, senior experienced staff that teaches as well as supervise, and replacing them with inexperienced, unqualified novices. Now, just remind, again, just to remind you, this is what you have said to us, not, yeah. The third one is about nursing management, and obviously this one will be very popular. <laughs> nursing management are often out of touch with what is required on the ground to fulfil all nursing care procedures required to give high standards of care. Many managers have not worked clinically for some time and are more concerned about the budget and theoretical quality than actual standards of care which would lead to good quality care. So there is, so there is a perception from the nurses, the ward nurses, that management don't, are more concerned with budgetary issues than the delivery of care. The second theme we've pulled out are the tasks that are missed. And again, what we found was missed was the basic nursing care. So that tallies with what we found with the quantitative results. 
that when nurses are asked to ration care or to decide what care to deliver, the care that gets missed is the basic nursing care and the interpersonal care, so spending time with patients. The impact of this is seen as leading to poor patient outcomes in terms of nutrition, hydration, safety and patient satisfaction. There is a perception that it increases nurse dissatisfaction because nurses are feeling they're not delivering the care that they want to deliver. And also, there is a lot of unpaid overtime and nursing attrition. So the unpaid overtime we found was a lot of nurses missing meal breaks, coming in early and leaving late and not being paid for that time. Okay, so again, just a couple of quotes about missed care. Most of the medically important care is done, but documentation is often missed or retrospectively made up. Not much actual nursing care that is not direct treatment occurs. Not a lot of emotional support or basic nursing care is attended to. And the second one, which is about missing meal breaks. I see staff right across the hospital miss meal breaks and work beyond their shift times without claiming overtime. It seems to be a common occurrence. So staff are working extra hours to ensure that care is not missed. And finally, just a couple of slides about rounding, since this was something we were asked to look at specifically. We had a number of open questions about rounding, as well as just one question about whether rounding was practised at your workplace. And what we found was that rounding was actually poorly understood by many nurses, and it was confused with bedside handover or doctor's rounds by some nurses. For those nurses who did understand what rounding was, it was associated with regular toileting, pain relief, checking drains and pumps, ensuring all call bells are within reach, repositioning patients and repositioning patients and checking patients' safety. Now we asked nurses what they thought of rounding. As you can see, the nurses who liked rounding thought it was associated with increased patient satisfaction, completion of basic nursing care, timely assessment of patients, and improved patient safety. Conversely, the majority of respondents felt that it was time-consuming, that it detracted from patient care because it took people, nurses away from actually performing basic nursing care, and that the recording of rounding was poorly documented or was made up afterwards at the end of the shift. And when we actually looked at the relationship between sites that were performing rounding and missed care, we actually found that sites that were performing rounding actually identified more missed care rather than less. Now, why, there are a number of reasons why this may be. It may be because people have misunderstood what rounding is. It may be that instituting rounding makes nurses more sensitive to missed care, so they're more likely to see it. It may be that rounding has been instituted because the sites are having problems with missed care, or it may well be that the performance of rounding is detracting from nursing time to perform uh, nursing tasks. Okay, and that's uh, where I'll leave it. We, uh, I understand from Mark that the report, we have finished, the there is a report available and that will be going up on the website, the union website, sometime soon if you want to chase it up. And it's also available at the Flinders University website. And you're certainly welcome to come and ask me questions about it. So questions and comments come up uh, to uh, uh, there.
So, Julie, have there been any sort of observational studies to correlate more objectively with uh, what people say on their surveys? There have been a number of studies that have looked at nurse, the staffing hours and nurse sensitive indicators. They've mainly been done in the US. In Australia, it's actually quite difficult to do the same sort of surveys, um, the same sort of data, because we just don't have the same level of data collection, which means that we have to actually go to the hospitals to get permission to look at their critical incidents, and that's something which is quite sensitive and quite difficult. And so miscare is a way, while it is actually getting at people's perceptions of what's being missed, we have found that where the data does exist, there's a fair degree of um, overlap between nurses' perceptions of what care is missed and what is actually being missed. And in terms of solutions, um, obviously, I mean, there, there I mean, what are they, you address that to some extent, what people are doing when they're not doing the basic care. Yes. Um, which implies waste. Yes. And which is addressing the organisation of care. So who's, you know, what sort of systems might be, and obviously it's patchy. There'll be some places where there's very little miscare and some places where there's a lot. What factors do we know objectively make a difference here? And, and I want to get onto solutions. It's, um, I think, for me, one of the telling things is the extent of time nurses spend chasing resources that are not available. I think, um, while it may not be possible to produce more staffing, and, and miscare is not occurring all the time on every shift, it's, it's about when sh shifts become um, more difficult, but it, it seems that it's the access to resources which is the biggest issue. So that if, if the resources are there, if there are systems in place that allow people to access the resources when they need them, need them so they don't have to ring around to every ward to find medication after hours that's been ordered. And better communication, perhaps, about when these things are ordered so that people know to order them in before we get into the after hours period. Because what we're seeing also is that often medications are ordered and people aren't aware that they've been ordered until they come to do the, the drug round at, at six o'clock at night and then they have to chase that medication. Adam, what do we know about changing clinician behaviour, whether it be doctors, nurses, psychologists or physiotherapists? Um, because they cling to the belief that what they do is right, it's not wasteful, um, and uh, why should I change? Yeah, well, what's proving to be the best leverage point, if you like, directly with clinicians is the data, showing them the data. Um, there was a a very interesting case just recently I was involved at looking at, um, I guess it's confidential so I can't say too much, but it was looking at a certain area of care and there was a clinical advisor who, who was shown some data, a range of data that ranged from 8% to 80%, 80% being very bad, 8% being very good and compliant and, and they said, well, which hospital do you think you're part of? And he said, well, we're in, we're in the 8% for sure. And they said, well, no, you're actually, your hospital's the 80%. And they just didn't know, genuinely did not know. And that data, I think, was very illuminating to some of the doctors uh, and nurses who are involved. Do incentives work? Incentives do work. Um, though incentives are a little bit of a mixed bag. People always talk about the fee-for-service system within Australia as being a big driver of inappropriate care, and it's certainly true. But in other countries, in other jurisdictions where they don't have a fee-for-service, we still find that there's overuse as well. So it's not, it's a part of the picture, but it's not the whole picture. Do disincentives work? 
they can work. Um, and this is, I think, some, an area that more and more people are exploring, and that is whether or not you start to think about an inappropriate care event, almost like a never event, and maybe it shouldn't be paid for, things like that. And that's certainly been trialled in other parts of the world. Yep. So Medibank's trying that at the moment with Calvary. Right. Yep. Uh, somewhat controversially. And just quickly, how did they turn around vitamin D in Australia? What, what was the change, tweaks so the, that they did? The, the primary change um, came in the item descriptor. So every MBS item number has a description about you know, the patient groups for whom it's appropriate. And they realised that it was just far too broad and it wasn't specific enough. So there was some tightening of that indication to actually say, well, vitamin D testing is very good for this group of patients and this is who we we encourage it for, and then um, NPS Medicine-wise did some very good clinical detailing where they went out to GPs particularly and actually started to drive that message home. Yeah. Yes. Catherine Ingram, a delegate from Concord Hospital Drug Health. Um, I just want to thank you. Thank you for coming so far. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's more difficult to get here than from the Mercury. <laughs> but, um, I just want to thank Dr. Henderson for that study that she's doing, which I think is just scraping the top of the iceberg. Yes. But um, I just wanted to talk about how frustrating it was for me doing it. I gave up in the end because I work in drug health yes. slash mental health, and almost all the tasks seem to be physical tasks. So in the end, I just didn't finish it. And, um, but I'm a pre you probably came up with the same results you would have if you'd done one for us. <laughs> Yeah, we, um, we sort of took the comments to, to capture that. The survey was originally designed for acute care hospitals and we're in the process of design, redesigning mm. it for aged care. Yeah. Um, but there isn't as yet, it hasn't yeah. as yet been developed for community health. And in fact, we're looking, we will be looking later on this year yeah. to, to, to collect data around what's happening in aged care across Australia. Yeah. So we're drug health detox mainly and, and nice step down instead of rehab. So we often get described as the low acuity area, but actually we are very high acuity in mental health, physical and drug health. Yes. And so it's a bit frustrating, just different parameters. And so just with, um, I don't know how to pronounce your name. Elshock, Adam. Elshock. No Elshock. Adam's Adam. yeah. really easy though. Yeah. I work in an area which was previously nurse run. In fact, I trained in that area many years ago when it was nurse run. Very effective, very efficient. And now it's moved to a hospital where we've moved into a medical area with our drug health, mental health patients. And I've just seen such a colossal rise in um, tests, scans, of any, every description. It seems to be mainly there to educate medical students and medical doctors. And I would love to have it costed because it's just been phenomenal. And what has happened is that the doctors now have taken over and they have undermined the, the experienced nursing staff to an extent we've lost most of them. And I think they prefer to lose us because we're less questioning of what they're doing. Mm. And, um, yeah, uh, the ward's been fatally disrupted. Like the nursing management and, and our... Um, Work practices have been fatally, I would say, disrupted. It's easier to tear a thing down than build it up. So we actually operate now in a really chaotic system. So can I just ask a question? 
have outcomes been measured in the two different way, the two different systems? No, of course not, because they want to keep doing that. And I'd like to also add about evidence-based practice. Depends on who decides what the evidence is going to be and who's doing the research. And guess what? It's not really the busy clinical nurses. Yeah. So it's very. I find it very frustrating. Because very little is looking at it from our point of view. And, and people, I've seen people present things at conferences which make it look like it's improved, which is, I, I don't like to use the word here, but I'm, it's not yeah. true. Well, Thank I you think, very much. I think yeah. your, your observation... <laughs> I think your observation is very insightful because... What we don't have is this sort of temporal idea of how things have changed over time oh. in certain locations. And yeah. the research from the US does actually show that the higher number of junior doctors in particular, that does drive greater utilisation because it's yeah. exciting and to order a test and see all the results. I, I might cut you off there because there's a long yeah. line of people behind you. But thank you very much for those questions and well made. And just while the next person is coming up, this assessment of evidence and mm. because it's you know, how you assess evidence in this to make these yeah. decisions? Well, it's actually interesting. The, the reason all of those green, grey and red zone boxes that I was showing you earlier, the only reason we can do that work now is because that's required clinical groups, doctors and nurses, to actually come together and, and draw some consensus lines around what is inappropriate versus appropriate care. Before that, it's people like me who stand up and tell a surgeon that they're doing something wrong and I'd lose all my hair doing that. So the fact that... Doctors and nurses are now doing it. It's actually given us a very good, um, a very good footing. Yes, uh, Albert White, Life Member. Um, a question in relation to the um, appropriateness or not. There was a query down in uh, Canberra a matter of a few days ago, trying to determine the number of people who had flu this season as opposed to last season, and uh, they decided that it was an increased number this year because they they submitted nine and a half thousand swabs for pathology for to prove that it was flu. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in relation to uh, testing as well, how many ultrasounds do we need for an uncomplicated pregnancy? Um, uh, but I, I have a, a dreadful feeling that um, we are pawns in a big game. The clinicians are the operators. I think that the patients are the subjects and their big business actually running health. Health has become a consumer good, and it's consuming and it's profit-driven. Mm -hmm. There's no question about it, and we are being experimented on. And when a patient goes along to a doctor and requests a particular procedure, there's no doubt about it, there's advertising behind it at some stage or other. And when the doctor reaches for his script pattern, makes a decision for to, to prescribe drugs or decide on a particular prosthesis, there's a lot of advertising and pushing behind it. So I think that we're the bunnies in the spotlight. Here, here. So what is the evidence both that patients drive demand, because that's yep. a popular one with the current government, yes. that it's all the patient's problem, therefore if we make it more expensive, yep. patients won't ask for it, so you get the GP co-payment, versus patients reducing demand. Absolutely. So the NPS has just done a survey of GPs and they've asked thousands of Australian GPs what, what the GPs think is driving this and they came up with five main reasons and there's the usual fear of litigation. Sometimes they say, well, there's no other test. Sometimes they say that the patients are asking for it. Um, and uh, it's interesting because we, we know that that is not always the case and that, in fact, then certainly some of the more interventional specialists um, that 
there is the notion of supplier-induced demand. They are driving the demand, they are choosing the prosthesis that they're putting in, and there are commercial interests at play, no doubt about it. So what I would, though, say is, though, even though if you believe that, I'd still encourage you to use your voice um, to stand up against that and actually to call that out, because I think we need, as a society, to be reminded that these drivers are becoming quite pervasive. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I'm, I'm Louise Peterson. I work in the aged care sector. Uh, I actually have a great concern in regard to your low-value practices, as it has been introduced in the Netherlands, for example. Um, I wanted to question um, if an aged-care person over 70 is no longer eligible for a knee replacement based on their age, mm. what purpose does uh, low-value practices then have for the well-being of the aged care sector? Well, I guess you're, you're proposing that um, that definition of low-value care is inappropriate. Um, you can guarantee that there will not be a cut-off date, like an age factor for people for procedures? Right. Because practice established that that's actually happening in other parts in the world. Yeah, which is why I think it's only more important that um, the clinical community, everyone in this room, becomes involved in defining what is an appropriate versus inappropriate practice. So have you introduced safety guidelines for that purpose? Sorry? Are you introducing safety guidelines for that purpose, or are you just going to say there's so no value so in this healthcare? Just to be clear, you're saying that in the Netherlands there's an age cutoff for knee replacement? That is. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than a functional... Also for cardiac intervention, yeah. stroke treatment. Yeah. Adam would yes. say that's a crude way of doing it. I would say it's a very crude way of doing it. I mean, I think, however, any country has to decide how they're going to allocate their resources, and then that needs to be uh, as democratic process. There's a little processes. bit of an issue there, and that is a fully privately run and privately funded healthcare sim, because you for HCF, um, will give the power to the providers, and that is what now occurring. They are now dictating to the doctors and the public what can and can't be done. Uh, if you want to talk about low-care value practices mm. and we go in the private sector way, as you can see with the government decisions, then will we end up in a fully privatised sector where me, getting older, like many of us, will not be eligible for a cardiac bypass operation because of my age factor? Well, uh, the technical point there is actually incorrect. The you know, whether or not you like private health or otherwise, they have to pay for whatever Medicare pays for. So actually Medicare, which is government funded, is the anchor point funding. So, so private health insurance has no choice. They have to pay for it. Yes. They will still, under low care value, say there's no value in this treatment for this person. They might believe it, but they have to pay for it. So, okay. so we have our processes through the MSAC and otherwise. Is, is that in the legislation yeah, or is that on a piece of paper that... No, it's, legis it's legislated. Call me cynical, but it we've seen too many changes. It also covers what they don't pay, because if it's not on the NBS, right. they don't pay. Right. Yes, can we, can we just go through these very quickly now, because we're now eating into people's um, replenishment of their blood sugar time. Um, the first question is, my name is Mary Jane Beach. I work partly at St John of God, but mostly in private practice. And my question is, to save money, I don't understand why the majority of clients I see who have a healthcare card have no difficulty doctor shopping and getting scripts from six different pharmacies in one morning. Right. They did take talk a couple of years ago about putting um, some sort of vetting system on that, some yeah. alert system, but if they have, it clearly doesn't work. Yeah. Obviously, it's not good for the clients, but I also resent my taxes going to mm. support people that, some, that, in, that is inherently unhelpful for them. Yeah. And obviously, the doctors and the pharmacies make money, 
but the health services miss out to me. That's Absolutely. Money very poorly spent. I agree with you 100%. So and why isn't it done? Like everything you do goes into that computer at the pharmacy. Right. Why can't they link them up and do it properly? Well, uh, I agree with you, and it needs to happen. I mean, I work with a colleague at the University of Sydney, and part of her research is actually to track those inappropriate multi-prescriptions and all the rest. And, um, and other countries can do this, and other countries do do this. Um, there is a computer screen, a flag pops up and says, this person was just at another doctor or another pharmacist three hours ago, um, and Australia is slow to move in this area. And I wonder why. Who's making all the money? Who's paying who to keep this in place? Well, when just casually look at the Pharmacy Guild of Australia who control some of these computer programs who represent pharmacy employers. So uh, there are some some commercial issues there. But thank you for that point, and I'll take the next question. Can I just make one comment very quickly? A couple of places I was working at a few years ago, um, every time the nursing unit manager came in under budget, she got a $3,000 bonus. And, and I think in the public system, people under a huge scrutiny to come in under bu- budget. And so that's coming from the top. So what do you think... Thank you very much for that. And one of the next person's coming up. That's the negative side. But, I mean, Obamacare has created accountable care organisations yeah. where the organisation shares in the benefits. So that's if right. you can deliver the same outcomes for less money, you can actually keep some yeah. of that... And the key point you've made there, Norman, is it's about the outcomes and it's about measuring the outcomes and that's something that I think we don't do as well in Australia either, A, agreeing on what outcomes are important to measure but then actually measuring them and pegging, pegging our performance to those measures. Really short. Uh, Amanda Short, delegate for Coffs Harbour. Um, one part's to do with budget, the second part is about the miscare that go in together. We've become a computerised world. Um, New South Wales Health is very computerised, and yet we're doing more paperwork than I think I've ever done in 35 years in nursing. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And um, we now got these categories where a patient goes from an acute care to a subacute or from acute to palliative or from acute to rehab, they're now about to introduce into our local health district a two, uh, a seven page document that we have to fill out and it's going to land with the discharge planners or the nursing unit managers to fill that out for every patient that changes so that they can get the funding. It's all wrapped up in that. So you're missing a nursing care. Our medical ward is, has got 48 beds and they've identified there's at least 20 patients that they will have to do this paperwork on, which will take about two, between one and a half and two hours at a time. Mm-hmm. And we're just getting worse and worse, um, just trying to justify the budget and we're losing the, um, the, the face-to-face. That's basically all no, I want to say. Yeah. And of course... Isn't there, isn't there a move in choosing wisely to have healthcare management part of that, so ma- well, management practices that, yep. to, that waste time and money? Yeah, that was the proposal I talked about in our MJA paper. We said, we'll turn this back, turn this back on the managers um, and identify those process and administrative waste areas because they're legitimate, no doubt about it. Yes. Uh, Robert McDermott, I, I work in aged care as an RN at Springwood. I'd just like to speak very quickly to unpaid overtime Over the years, I've been as guilty as many in countless hours of unpaid overtime. These days, I do very, very little. I've observed over the years there are those who do it, there are those who absolutely don't. For for a raft of reasons, they have to be out of work exactly on time to pick up kids or whatever. But I have found, not doing the unpaid overtime, the world doesn't come to an end. 
And managers seem to have a way of adjusting to, you know, numbers of people who don't do unpaid overtime. They might even put on extra staff or do something that they... Um, so, um, yes, there are people that... I, I observe a lot of my colleagues that still do it, but a lot don't. And the place still functions and still gets by and managers do adjust and, and uh, they still find a way through. I've never had managers come round to me at half past 11 at night or 12 o'clock at night when I should have been gone at 11 and say, thank you for all this extra you're doing tonight. <laughs> but you do realise you won't be paid for it, don't you? Um, so, yeah. Thank you for that comment. Well, the Academy... <laughs> Can you please thank our two excellent speakers?